the cost of masculinity is the expenditure in euros or dollars, if you want to apply it to, to the states, incurred by the state and the society to address antisocial behaviors, which could be criminal, delinquent, violent, or at-risk behaviors of men. And it is a very simple mathematical difference between the expenditure for antisocial behavior of men and women. And in simple terms, it corresponds to the extra costs that the state would save if men behaved like women. Welcome. I'm your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. In the last episode, we talked to Jason Thompson about how he built a successful data and analytics services business using leadership principles based on humanity and empathy. This week, we go down a completely different path. We're not talking about leadership in the strict sense of the term, but our guest has demonstrated plenty of leadership at a very young age. Along with Lucille Petavin, she's the co-author of Il Costo della Virilità, which roughly translates to The Cost of Masculinity. This book is the Italian version of the book by the same name that Lucille published in French. Her research takes hard data on violent crimes committed by men versus those committed by women and shows the cost to society of a certain type of masculine values and the way that men are raised and socialized. Ginevra took the same methodology and applied it to Italian data and showed similar conclusions. To give you some context on the quality of the research, the book just won the Premio Nazionale di Divulgazione Scientifica Gianfranco Dosi, which is one of the top awards for non-fiction and science books in Italy. It is endorsed by the Consiglio Nazionale delle Ricerche, which is the most important organization for science and research in Italy. Since at this stage there is no plan to have an English or American version of the book, I asked Ginevra to come on the podcast and share with us the main content of the book, the key findings, and some of the action items that we can take based on their research. You will hear more than enough to be intrigued by this. And if you speak Italian or French, I strongly encourage you to find a copy of the book and read it. Enjoy. Let's start this conversation the way I start every episode. Introduce yourself to my listeners and you can take as little or as long as you want. Thank you very much, Dino, for having me. It's a, it's really an honor. So very briefly, my name is Ginevra. I am an Italian economist, I think they call me. I'm the author of Il Costo della Virilità, which would translate in English uh, as the cost of manhood or masculinity. And it's a, an economics book aiming at pointing out the uh, economic consequences of male violence in the Italian society and eventually in all societies. And I live in France. <laughs> Great. So uh, we, we're going to get to the book because it's, it's an extraordinary book and fascinating. You are still very young. You graduated from school, what, a couple of years ago? Yeah, two years ago. <laughs> two years ago. This is quite a serious project to undertake. What was the inspiration and you know what led you to do the research and how did this all come about? Just an important point, I think, before we start is that I want to clarify that when I talk about masculinity, I mean 
a concept that is constructed culturally and socially through which boys and men are educated. So the book is not about men themselves, uh, but about the education that is given to men, that the whole society gives to men. And our goal is not to target men as such, but to question masculinity as a social construct. Having said that, so... Basically, we started because we are two authors uh, with Lucille Pétavant, and we started this research from an observation that is very simple, evident to all, but uh, very little known, which is that men are responsible for the vast majority of violent, criminal or risky behavior in our societies. And one statistic that convinced me to conduct this research is that the male prison population represents 95% of the total. So in two words, our prisons are full of men, whether it's in Italy or France or in every other country in the world. And then when I discovered these figures and the initial research by Lucille Betavant, she's a French researcher with whom I wrote this book, I wondered how it was possible that I was not aware of it. I suspected that there were major costs behind violence, but not to that extent. And so we asked ourselves, what does violence mean in our society, especially the relationship between men and violence in our society? So when I say that men are responsible for the vast majority of criminal acts, uh, what do I mean is that we base the research on the statistics from the Ministry of the Interior, for me, from the Italian ministry and for Lucille on the French ministry, that show that the weighted average of responsibility for about 460 crimes and 2 million defendants uh, in Italy, for example, is 83% of male responsibility. So it's an overrepresentation of responsibility on all type of offenses, and especially the most serious one, ones like homicide, for example, or child abuse, for example. So I'm going to explain what is the cost of, of uh, masculinity. So before we get to, to the content of the book, um, I'm interested in how did you come about that? Was that something that you were doing while you were still in school? What was the trigger? What struck me when your book crossed my path is that it takes an incredible level of maturity to write a book like this. You know, you're in your mid-twenties, early twenties. No, mid-twenties. <laughs> Thank you, <laughs> by the way. It's a level of depth of maturity that is not common. I'm, more, I'm interested in your personal journey to this, and then we'll go deep into the book. For as long as I've been an adult, so since I was, I think, 15 years old, I've always been a feminist. It has been always a subject interesting me a lot. I always read a lot. I took every opportunity to learn more about the subject um, since I was very young. Thanks, by the way, to, to my mother, who is also interested in these subjects. And every time I try to explain feminism or why uh, is parity and equality, why they are important for society and also to businesses, I would always have a very mild response from, from especially men, because every time we talk about feminism, it's very much about the philosophy behind it, the sociology behind it, uh, and never about numbers. So when I discovered this book, this research published by uh, Lucille Betavant in France, it kind of opened my eyes completely. 
And it was such an, uh, an innovative way of uh, thinking feminism and actually a way to talk about feminism about everyone, to everyone. I mean, you, you talk to their, to their wallet, you talk to their, their stomach uh, when you talk about public money. And so, yeah, that, that was the trigger. For example, the day the, the book was released, I bought it. It arrived the next day. And by the end of the next day, I already finished reading it. And just for, it, it's a casual thing, but the next day I was interviewed on an Italian radio about feminism. And I talked about this French book that was, that had been released for two days. And then Lucille saw that I talked about uh, his her book in the radio. And then we started just talking. And in like in four days, after four days, the book was released. We already were working on uh, a new edition. And she gave me the right to use her mythology and write the same book for Italy. And now we are, we are working on other projects since then. Uh, but yeah, that, that, that was the start of it. Okay, so the book, the original version of the book, she wrote for France, and then he used the same methodology and ran the research in Italy. Yeah. Let's now get into the book. When I interrupted you, in perfect male fashion. <laughs> <laughs> yep. At least you didn't mansplain it. <laughs> you were about to talk about what the cost of uh, masculinity. Let's get into that definition. The cost of masculinity is... Basically, the expenditure in euros or dollars, if you want to, to apply it to, to the states, incurred by the state and the society to address antisocial behaviors, uh, which could be criminal, delinquent, violent, or at-risk behaviors of men. And it is basically just a, a very simple mathematical difference between the expenditure for antisocial behavior of men and women. And in simple terms, it corresponds to the extra costs that the state would save if men behaved like women. And um, in this cost, we consider two types of costs. Firstly, of course, the, the, the simplest one are the direct costs, which are borne by the states in terms of justice costs, law enforcement, health uh, services, prisons, for example. And then there are also the indirect costs, which are borne by society, by definition, and they are related to the physical and psychological suffering of victims, loss of productivity, destruction of private or public property, uh, not dependent on the state budget. And these indirect costs uh, can be quantified to some extent with existing data. So to avoid ex estimating too far, we did not include all of them in the calculations when we didn't have enough data. So nice to know that the cost of masculinity is actually underestimated. Just to give my listeners a, a sense of the order of magnitude, what are some of the most glaring numbers that you came up with? The total cost of masculinity in Italy, we have estimated it at 98.8 billion euros per year versus the 95 billion euros per year in France. And those include, for example, 10 billion euros out of the total 15 invested by the state for security including law enforcement, emergency, fire services, for example. We have 6.2 billion euros for justice out of the total eight. Child abuse, 9.62 out of 13. Illegal activities, uh, which include the mafia, of course, 21 billion out of 25.7. Road accidents, 
15.49 billions out of 23 billions. So yeah, it's uh, absolutely colossal cost. Um, and it is essential to know that it's also very underestimated. And I think for two reasons. The first one is that statistics divided by gender sometimes do not exist. Uh, so there are costs we couldn't absolutely include in the calculation because we didn't have the raw data. And secondly, is that there are a large number of offenses that do not result in legal or criminal proceedings. And so those are not included in the calculation either. Obviously, there is a great debate that's been going on since the dawn of time of nature versus nurture, you know, all this stuff. I assume that your research and your work pointed to some explanation of what is causing the difference between the two. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, it's a, it's a very big part of the book. We have written to, you know, debunk the myths around the behavior and the roles of men and women in society. So our book is based on, on very strong scientific foundations because every single p data point we use is issued from either governmental um, reports uh, or uh, very recognized scientific reports. And to find an answer to the question, why do men behave more violently than women, we have provided several scientific answers. And the, the, the sum of it is that the causes uh, of this overrepresentation of men in all the crimes and delinquencies in Italy and in France and probably in the rest of the world as well. Those causes are not physiological. Uh, they are not result of a, a male nature. Uh, men are not inherently violent. And we have demonstrated with science, uh, with a lot of scientific experiments, that there is nothing in men that predetermines them to behave violently. And it's more about the education they receive and the masculine values that lead them to behave more violently than women. And the fact that there are women capable of violence and men that will be pacific for all their, their life demonstrates that antisocial behaviors are not specific to one gender and they are culturally provided. And in the book, we debunk several myths from the myths around the Paleolithic and the roles of men and women. We debunk the myths of testosterone, for example, that would be this unfortunate hormone that makes men behave more violently than women. Uh, we have debunked the myths about the difference in the, in the brains, in the human brains of men and women. And yeah, so basically... All the myths we, we, we wanted to, to have to justify those violent and very costly, expensive behaviors from men, those are just not true. And with several studies, we, we have demonstrated that there's no fundamental thing behind them. And those three myths that you're referring to are like normally the main point that people bring up against the idea that this behavior is nurtured rather than natured, if you will. Yeah, because it's it's pretty simple to try to legitimize the behavior of people with uh, some biological factor that would just oblige them to, to have a certain behavior. And the testosterone is one, one of the, the most famous one, the one uh, that always comes back. But it has been demonstrated that there is no biological factor that 
makes men behave more violently and there is nothing natural in it. If it's not natural, where is some of the difference coming from? I know you talk about a difference between how women and men are educated. So what are some of the main things that my listeners should know about that? On this issue, the education sciences and sociology uh, provided a lot of answers and they showed that today we do not educate boys as we educate girls, meaning that we do not transmit the same set of norms and values for living in society. And the central notion at the heart of this difference is uh, the education between boys and girls, which is masculinity. And we define it as uh, a concept that brings together attributes of strength and power, both physical and moral. And it's a concept that is still today a norm to achieve defining what a true man should be. And it's the norm with which most Western societies and not only Western societies educate men with. So once again, proofs come from many scientific uh, experiments that we d- that demonstrate that we unconsciously mostly transmit these values very early in, bo- in the boys' lives and many other things in girls' lives, but this is not the focus of our discussion today. And it's important to say that we educate boys in this normative ideal that defines masculinity most of the time without realizing it, because we ourselves have been educated through these patterns and transmits these sometimes, mostly uh, unconsciously. For example, we have cited a lot of uh, very early studies in the in the life uh, of boys and girls. For example, um, there, there is one, a breastfeeding study shows that women tend to give more rhythm to a female baby than to a male baby since the first hours of their life. And they just let the male baby have more uh, their rhythm. They let them decide when to eat, how to eat, from which breast they could eat. And this this study just shows the level of unconsciousness of this education. I mean, at that age, you cannot even recognize a boy from a girl if if there is not a, a blue or a pink jumper, you know? And then uh, there are many other studies that have shown that when dealing with a male child, we have much more intense uh, physical interactions. When reading a story to a male child, we exaggerate anger much more than we're when we're reading it to, to a female. And we tend to verbalize feelings much more with girls, not with men, with, with boys. And also later in their education, we are more permissive with boys thinking that, you know, after all, it's boys will be boys. So disruptive behaviors of boys are less sanctioned than those of girls. And boys have more freedom in their movements, are less uh, sensitive to dangers. And in the, in a way, parents, relatives, basically everyone around children creates a groundwork for future deviant behaviors for men sometimes without realizing it or by minimizing the facts and saying that, after all, boys will be boys. And then tons of other scientific proofs that show that violence manifests very quickly in in boys' games, in the boys' behaviors, and the construction of the male 
identity beca- becomes extremely evident since their first years uh, of their life and comes to a, to a peak in their adolescence because uh, their their male uh, identity has to be built uh, in the in the eyes of the peers so yeah we 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 demonstrated that it's basically the education and it's not uh, the biology that causes those behaviors and even if it was the biology i think that at our level of of society we have a very evaluated society the cultural factor will always become much more uh, a priority in our development and one last point that i would like to address is that about boys education which is absolutely central is that their masculinity is constructed in opposition to femininity so from very early on boys learn that to make their masculinity exist uh, femininity must be despised and the proof of that is that the worst insults one can say to a man is you run like a girl you cry like a girl for example but i feel some of that luckily at least among your generation is changing there's a more awareness just an observation looking you know interacting with my kids who are more or less your age <laughs> well actually <laughs> that's what i what i was about to say is I, i'm not a parent so I, I don't even feel like giving advices to parents since I'm not a parent myself. But I do feel I have smaller brothers and sisters. The youngest one is 15. And I do feel they are more aware of that. And they're more aware of the, of the education they have been given, the different education they have been given, whether they're a girl or a boy. And I think a very big role was played by social networks. And it's surely bad for a lot of other things. But what I can see is that just young boys and girls are more keen to to question the education they have been given because they can see what the, the diversity of the education and also all the, the consequences it can have from social networks. So, yeah, it's a good sign. <laughs> After all this analysis, obviously there's different interventions at different levels. What are some of the actions that people can take just right now? Actually, solutions are to be found in the data. That's what we believe strongly with this book, is that half of the population, meaning women, which are not a minority, it's essential to, to remember that. Well, women are not educated through these masculine behaviors and values. And therefore, they statistically exhibit more, much more altruistic, peaceful behaviors, behaviors that are completely in line with the, the, the rule-based society that we, we chose to live in. For example, in Italy, they only represent 17% of people involved in legal proceedings after criminal acts, for example. And it's evident that women receive an education that nurtures their empathy, allowing them to better understand their emotions, uh, manage their emotions, uh, and manage and understand other people's emotions. Uh, they receive an education that promotes the creation of human capital that is essential to greater social cohesions. And the solution is just right in front of us, is uh, we, we are already applying it to half of the population. So let's educate boys with the same set of values we, we educate women with. 
And of course, it doesn't, it doesn't mean to uh, teaching boys to put uh, on nail, on nail, nail polish or curl their hair, of course, but and by all means that they can do it if they can do it if, uh, if they want. But these are not the elements that make women more peaceful people. It means giving them more altruistic, humanistic education and actually just give this humanistic uh, education to all children, one that develops empathy, altruism, respect for rules, respect for others, coexistence and appreciation appreciation of others. And of course, if we did that, we could save about 100 billion euros per year, which is pretty nice, I think, that we could invest in much more promising policies rather than building courts and prisons for men. Thank you. So you recently received a pretty prestigious book award uh, in Italy for the book. Can I ask you to tell my listeners what's the award and what it meant to, to receive such recognition for this book? Yeah, so <laughs> we won two weeks ago, I think, the uh, Italian National Divulga- uh, Scientific Divulgation Prize, which is a prize that is given by the CNR, the uh, National Center of Research of Italy in Rome. It's a great recognition, especially from the, the from a scientific community, because there there were a lot of selections before we we could uh, be selected among the five last books to, to to choose from. And we're we're really hoping that with this prize, it's a pretty controversial book. So when people talk about it. They usually have strong opinions, whether they're positive or ne- negative. So hope is that this book will not belong to us in the next years. We want it to belong to policymakers, to uh, anyone having an influence on either local, regional or national policies in Italy or France, for example, or any other country that would like to, to take this challenge on. And yeah, and also every individual who would like to, you know, influence their environment and especially if they're around children, because we think it's going to be hard because it's a, we are asking for a huge cultural change. But as all the cultural changes in the past, and I think about, for example, the ecology, which was something completely unknown uh, 30, 40 years. 40 years ago, and it's now uh, such an important part of everyone's lives, whether they like it or not. I think this will be one of the next great cultural challenges we have to take on. Uh, and we believe that this little uh, pink book, because the Italian edition is uh, its a very pink book, will help that. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm laughing because... <laughs> There's such a meta factor in that, the fact that the Italian editor took your book and gave it a pink cover. <laughs> it's like maybe, maybe the work needs to start there. No, well, actually, uh, I don't mind the pink color because it, there's a big a male armpit, a blue male arp, armpit in the same cover. So it's it does give it a, a pretty nice contrast. And I don't mind it that much. I mean, if those were the real problems, we, we would be okay. But are not for the moment. <laughs> so what are the next steps for you on this on this path of your research? We, because we, I'm uh, talking is we with, uh, with Lucille, we would like to take it outside of our countries, our respective countries, and maybe start with the European Union. The only 
barrier we have is the data. The data is uh, pretty difficult to find. It exists. We know it, we know it exists, but most of the time it's uh, not given enough importance to, to be public. So we would like to do the calculation and even try to make it an index, which would be a very much simpler way to calculate it and a way to, you know, measure over time the progress. And yeah, that's the plan. <laughs> but the, the, the only barrier would be data, but I'm pretty sure we were, we will be able to overcome it and maybe take on the United States, which are pretty big uh, challenge on that as well. And yeah, that, those are the next steps. Unfortunately for my listeners, the book is only in Italian. Yeah. And I guess there's the French edition of the original book. Is, is there a plan for a translation maybe in the UK or the US? Since it's based on national data, it's pretty difficult to have it translated. I mean, it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be that interesting for a British reader to, to read about it, about Italian numbers. But yeah, our aim is to, to do it in English and maybe do a, a smaller calculations part for each country. But yeah, no, sorry. <laughs> As of now, <laughs> the only content in, in English is this podcast. I'm sorry, sorry. <laughs> No, that's great. I'm very excited to be the English voice of this really important research. If people want to find you or want to learn about the book, where is the best place to find you? LinkedIn, of course, and Instagram. Uh, it's just my name all over it. So <laughs> Great. So now we're going to go to what I call the more personal part of the podcast. What is a hobby or a passion that you have outside of your work and what impact has it had on your work life? Sorry, I'm not that original, but that would be reading. <laughs> reading is as it has always been and will always be my, my magical escape. And I mean, I read a lot of essays, of course, my work as a feminist economist and also for my corporate work because I have a job <laughs> besides writing. But actually, I, I, I really love Robins. A good book can always feel like home for a while. And my, my measure of a book's quality lies in the degree to which when turning that last page, it feels like you've lost a friend, <laughs> right? You, you can feel it. <laughs> yes. And yeah, that's, I mean, romance. And I, I really like um, every book from uh, the Prix Goncourt, which is one of the most prestigious literary awards in France. And those books are Usually very light and very, very nice to, to read. The last one, I think it's, it has only been released in France for, for the moment. Veillez sur elle. Uh, it's a fantastic book that effortlessly uh, transported me into this world for, for a delightful 500 pages. My next question, which is my favorite question, every year I has this business expression, jargons or cliches that are so overused that they lose their meaning, which is the one that drives you crazy? I'm not sure it exists in English, but it's that would be the Italian equivalent of feminazi. <laughs> oh, yes. Let's explain. <laughs> well, I, I think it's pretty self-explanatory. Uh, but yeah, it's feminist yeah, yeah. nazist. I don't see the, the meaning of it. It, it. That just doesn't make sense. But it would be like we, we wanted to exterminate men and it's uh, it's completely the opposite of what we, we want to do as feminists uh, and especially in this book because we are basically saying, guys, it's 
like, I mean, you, you are super expensive for states, but there is a solution there and it's just about culture. Uh, there is nothing inside you that obliges you to behave violently. So yeah, that, that, that's a word that just drives me crazy. I'm like, okay, you really don't have any other argument. <laughs> That's great. Uh, final question. I call it food for the body or food for the soul. And you already mentioned the book that you love. So maybe you want to go the body, right? The body, I ask people to share with me either a recipe or a drink. If they go the body, right? Or if they go the soul route is a you know book, piece of art, music, etc. that right now they find inspirational or nourishing or something that they go to now. So, so I know I'm Italian. I'm supposed, not, not, not because I'm a woman, because I'm Italian, I'm supposed to be a very good cook. But just the other day, I managed to ruin a fried egg. So I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> uh, I'm very bad. <laughs> well, no, no, but so not something that you cook, something that you like to eat that somebody else cooks for you. Oh, okay. Oh, that, that would be anything with carbs. From pasta to pizza to, I mean, that's, that's, that's just my, my happy place. <laughs> Fabulous. Well, Geneva, thank you so much for coming to my podcast. Congratulations again for the incredible work that you've done and good luck with the rest of it. Thank you very much, Dino. Thank you very much for having me for, for the interesting questions. Well done for everything. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, first of all, go and check a few of the episodes that you may have missed. There's a lot of episodes in the podcast and they're all really good. Then find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows rating and reviews like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, Good Pods, please leave a stellar rating and a review. Five stars. Stay tuned because after the credits, I will play a song by Susan Cattaneo, one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters. For more information on the episode and all the links, go to the website al4ep.com, spelled with the number four. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com. And also... Please follow the podcast on whatever social network you're on. On Twitter and Instagram, the handle is at AL4EDP with the letter D. And on Facebook, look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely with Squadcast. The theme music was composed, produced and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And now... Here is Wrecking Ball by Susan Cattaneo. Brick by brick, you built this house of love on nothing but lies. Holes in the walls, cracks in my heart, and nothing inside. 